1915, of course she couldn't vote. She couldn't run for office. Um, but she was one of the most influential women in America, just by the nature of her films. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert coming to you live transcribed from Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing interesting work involving classic era movies, archivists, authors, video producers, historians, and more. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the online discussion site about classic era film. In this episode, I talk to Dennis Doros of Milestone Films about one of the most famous directors of the early cinema, who happens to have been a woman, Lois Weber. I'll also talk about the recent TCM Classic Film Festival in Los Angeles with nitrate diva Nora Fiore. She'll tell us what and who she saw there, and how they paid tribute to TCM's late host, Robert Osborne. But first, remember to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you're feeling kindly, leave us a review with as many stars as you feel it merits. That helps other people find out about Nitrateville Radio, too. Last episode, I talked with folks at George Eastman House about their Nitrate Picture Show Film Festival. Nitrate showings are rare, but not so completely rare that they didn't also show Nitrate at another recent festival, the TCM Classic Film Festival, sponsored by everyone's favorite cable channel, at the Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles, April 6th through 9th. However, Nitrate was only one kind of vintage film experience offered at the festival as we'll learn talking to Nora Fiore, better known as Nitrate Diva, on her blog of that name and Twitter. So, how was the TCM Festival? It was fantastic. Uh, this was my fourth year going, and I feel like it's getting better each time I go. I, there were lots of special guests, and I was the, the Nitrate was probably the highlight for me, though. So what did you see in Nitrate? I saw all four of the nitrate screenings that they did at the Egyptian Theater. It was a huge renovation to get a booth that is certified and capable of showing nitrate and, and all the safety requirements. It was a long, I'm sure, expensive process that they talked to us a bit about so that they could, um, so the Egyptian Theater can show vintage nitrate prints. And this year at the festival, to mark that, showed four films in nitrate they showed the man who knew too much from 1934 which is actually a print i saw two years ago at nitrate show but it was so beautiful i went to go and see it for the third time because i'd seen it another time since i went to see laura that was the first time i had seen that print of laura um, and it actually interestingly enough was the print that the academy reviewed when considering it for academy awards so it won best black and white cinematography on the on the by the virtue of that print, which is kind of an added frisson to seeing that. They showed Black Narcissus, which is another print that I had seen two years previously at Nitrate Show. And then they showed Lady in the Dark. I'm not sure where that print came from, I think from UCLA. 
And that was the highlight for me because it was a film I'd never seen and also obviously a print I'd never seen. And that was just, it just leapt off the screen. It was phantasmagoric. <laughs> yeah, th that was one that sounded really interesting to me because it's a film, yeah, nobody's seen it. It's I think it was considered kind of a flop from a popular show back when it was made. But the little bit of clips I've seen, yeah, I mean, it just it looks like a grown-up Fantasia or something. It's such, so wild and colorful. It, it, Fantasia is a good word for it. It was like a, a Freudian Fantasia. but And it, it's this really fascinating contrast where it's a film that, you know, in terms of the ideology it's trying to push is very, you know, 40s, very male chauvinist, very, you know, if you're a woman and you're having problems it's because you're trying to be in charge. So there's lots of dialogue that you could definitely feel the audience kind of bristling at in <laughs> 2017, which is, you know, not uncommon with classic movies. But this one was very unusual because the whole core of its plot was revolving around this idea that a woman in charge is, is due for a breakdown, basically. But the way it explores that and explores one woman's kind of ambivalence about relationships and beauty felt stunningly ahead of its time with all of this pure spectacle. And, and the color palette was really fascinating. It's a film by uh, Mitchell Leeson, who had this you know extraordinary career as really a, a stylist. You know, he had his visual sense was so strong and and so striking and in this case the it's the main character works for a, a women's magazine so it's sort of like you you dropped acid and looked at a 1940s vogue <laughs> um it, it's just these these panoplies and all these beautiful colors especially the, the colors that seem to be most dominant to me were this minty shade and pastel pinks and these really bright golds with you know little splotches of red on ginger rogers's lips and nails so it was just a visually i thought i thought the people with me were gonna have to hold me down i was so <laughs> like oh my god did you see that that was amazing i mean it was it was truly eye-popping so two films then in which uh the, the appearance of red lipstick uh, signals a major turning in the plot since yeah. when uh, Black Narcissus when Kathleen Byron finally puts on lipstick that's you know that's the big shocking moment in the movie well I was thinking about all of those films and it's interesting because they they all are about kind of even it's interesting because it would be difficult to qualify anyone as a pure mystery. I mean, Laura is probably the closest to a mystery, but it's a it's an unusual mystery where you think somebody's murdered and then they're not. And Man Who Knew Too Much is sort of a mystery, but not quite. And they all revolve around these female figures who are struggling with important decisions and ethical um, quandaries. So, and, and in all of the cases, I feel like the feminine beauty is very important to what makes the film so arresting and also to the plot in many cases. In Lady in the Dark, she's struggling with, with beauty. So in her dreams, it's like a glut of beauty. It's it's sort of taunting her with the, the feminine beauty that... The Freudian, as the Freudian therapist explains, that she's coveted all her life and has eluded her. So, never mind that she's Ginger Rogers. So right. But okay, movie. Um, and then you know, Laura obviously her beauty makes her, in many ways, a victim of the men around her who manipulate her and use her. And it's not until the very end that she takes control. And in Black Narcissus, it's all about renouncing beauty until it it finally takes over. Sister Ruth and her need to be beautiful for, for Mr. Dean. And a little more tangential there in um, The Man Who Knew Too Much, but I still always think about those beatific close-ups of Edna Best, where she looks like a a Renaissance Madonna with a deco hairdo. Right, and also, I mean, her skill is that she's a shooter, which could hardly be a more male pastime 
for the female to have taken up. That's why I like that version much more than the later one. I mean, I think Doris Day gives a fantastic performance in Hitchcock's remake of his own film, but the original one has something that the later one doesn't. And I think a big part of that is the assertive role that the mother plays in saving her child. And also just the way that adds to the symmetry of the plot. She loses the shooting match at the beginning, but she wins the more, much more vital one at the end without giving too much away. And also I think how much that adds to the Albert Hall scene when she's in the Doris Day one, she's just kind of staring around in blind panic. But in this one, she is a marksman or markswoman. So she's looking around and her, the way she sees the space She's lining it up from a shooter's perspective, going, where would he be? Where would be the line of the shot? Where would it be going? So that really adds a lot of tension in that scene, and you can kind of see the wheels turning in her head. And I have to say, that scene, uh, what was really killing me when I was watching that scene was the whiteness of the musician's cummerbunds, which were just bleeding. <laughs> so, I mean, it was almost like you were looking at it through tears in your own eyes. It was too bright and too, I mean, you know, too bright, I believe, in an intentional way on, on the nitrate. It was really very striking, and I'd never noticed that even in two previous viewings of that print. So you really do notice something new every time. Yeah, I haven't seen, um, you know, this nitrate or any other good print of it, except I've seen the Criterion Blu-ray, mm -hmm. which made it a visual film for the first time to me. I'd only ever seen Muddy 16, and yeah. it's a much better movie once you can actually see it. Imagine that. Absolutely, and I believe that the restoration came from that print. It's one thing I wanted to talk about was Cock of the Air, the very naughtily titled uh, Howard Hughes comedy, which was maybe the rarest film that they presented at the festival. It's a comedy that was heavily cut by the production. You know, um, it was just it was heavily cut to the extent that twelve minutes were missing of sound. They found footage to plug up the gaps but there was no sound they scoured all the archives that they could they didn't find the sound so it's one of these things where they were faced with the decision of getting really creative or just leaving it as it is they had beautiful visual elements but 12 minutes of audio missing and what they decided to do was i think pretty daring for a restoration really more of a reconstruction where they hired a few voice actors to fill in the dialogue got these extraordinary sound technicians to fill in the gaps in the audio and, you know, get, get all the, the textures in there. And it was really good. I was definitely a little skeptical about, oh boy, how, what's this going to be like? I, I hadn't realized that they had, that it needed such a massive effort to fill in things that were missing. But I was really pleasantly surprised, especially the Chester Morris, the voice they got to do Chester Morris was on the nose. And it was a really it just modeled everything I love about pre-codes in, in the sense that it was a very woman-driven film. Uh, Billy Dove, I feel, is not as well-known as she should be, and partially that's probably because many of her films are not available. But this one, she was just absolutely delightful as this naughty Parisian singer who is forced out of Paris during World War One by a coalition of powers because she's too distracting to the Allies. <laughs> It was very Lubitsch esque where at the at the beginning it's basically the United Nations before the United Nations, sort of like the League of Nations, telling her to get out of Paris because she's threatening the security of the nation. And so they take her to Italy where in this beautiful carnival scene with the camera tracking all through the 
streets and streamers everywhere. A very visually stunning movie and very, you know, uh, moving camera. She sees this roguish American officer whom she decides she's going to teach him a lesson. So she invites, she, she goes to his villa and proceeds to frustrate his desires in every way she can think of, including at one point a suit of armor that she dons. Um, to to keep his advances away, so it was a really creative, funny comedy, and it's one of those movies where the whole time you're watching, you're going, "Please don't have a cop out ending. Please don't have a cop out ending." And it didn't have a cop out ending, which is possibly why it got censored and scissored so much. Because at the end, Billy Dove teaches Chester Morris a lesson, and there's one other thing I have to say because only at TCM Film Festival would anybody—well, not only, but. Is TCM Film Festival is one of the few festivals where anybody would uh, know what you're talking about there. Let's just say that there is a scene where I have now seen parts of Chester Morris that cannot be unseen. <laughs> he is walking around for basically 10 minutes in nothing but a bath towel, and it is not a very covering bath towel. <laughs> so that was an unusual restoration and, and one that I think maybe some of the real pre-code and rare movie fanatics would be interesting, interested in hearing about. So people were a big attraction of the TCM Festival. Who did you meet that that was exciting to to, or who did you hear from in some way? Well, uh, I it was probably the highlight for me in terms of people was listening to Angela Allen talk about Beat the Devil. Angela Allen is a script supervisor, what used to be known as a script girl or a continuity girl. She worked with John Huston on 14 films and just has stories like you wouldn't believe. She also worked on The Third Man. She worked on The Dirty Dozen. So she has this insider's perspective on a lot of essential films. But in this case, she was talking about a little a film that I now believe to be underrated, and that's Beat the Devil. Another film that, you know, if you saw it on one of the prints that's floating around, you might not think very much of it, but we saw it in a beautiful restoration, I believe, by the Cohen Film Group, which which just was stunning, and it gave me a new perspective on that movie. I thought I'd seen it, but I think I must have watched a bad print and turned it off and thought, I'm not wallowing through this, but <laughs> it was just... I think seeing it with an audience also helped because it was hilarious and people were just uproarious and seeing it with Angela Allen talking about it, talking about how when they got to Ravello, Italy, they didn't have a script that John Huston liked. And so they got Truman Capote to write the script and every day he was writing new new pages for the script and they were shooting it in order because they didn't know where it was going and they'd take the script pages to the set and the actors would embellish it and improvise it so she'd have to take the script pages back to Truman Capote in the evening and say you better read what we did because if you don't you might take the plot in the wrong direction <laughs> so just one of those really uh, amazing shoots another I, I always find it's really valuable to go to Club TCM, which is a, a room for pass holders only. It's kind of a little stage area in the Roosevelt Hotel where they have extended usually one-hour conversations with some of the special guests. This year it was Peter Bogdanovich, Lee Grant, and Dick Cavett. I was there for all three of them. And you always miss a movie to go and see them. You might even miss two movies to go and see them because you really have to go and get a seat. They're very popular. But both times I was in the first or second, I was in the second or third row, and I got to Listen to all these amazing stories. Uh, Bogdanovich had, you know, he has the best stories about Orson Welles and John Huston, Cary Grant, and everybody. Um, it was it was especially funny because if you watch some of those old interviews with Peter Bogdanovich, he seems very much the you know hotshot young director. But it was funny to hear about how when he was working on The Other Side of the Wind, John Huston and Orson Welles, he said, just used to tease him mercilessly, um, just used to really cut him down the size, which he, he took very good-humoredly as you know the kid brother in that situation. But he did 
talk about how Orson Welles made him promise that if anything happened to him, that he would finish the other side of the wind. So it's, it seems like it might be happening now, but it was a very poignant moment to hear him talk about that. Hmm. Yeah. I've, you know, I've always heard that, uh, Bogdanovich was was kind of arrogant, but I have to say, it always impressed me that he was so willing to be the butt of John Ford's jokes that he put together <laughs> that clip where where Ford just cuts him down one time after another. But on the other hand, you know, John Ford came to his aid when he needed it. He was talking about Ben Johnson in the last picture show, and Ben Johnson, you know, he gave him the you know Bogdanovich gave him the script and said, you know, would you do this? Would you consider doing this? And he said, nope, too many words. Don't like it, Pete. Too many words. And so he thought, well, how can I really, it's perfect for him. How do I get him to do it? So he called John Ford and said, you know, could you kind of talk to Ben and tell him that this might be really good for him? He could win an Academy Award, you know, a lot of potential. And John said, oh, he always bitches about too many words. <laughs> he's saying too many words. Can't you just get me on a horse? There's too many words. Um, so John Ford called Ben Johnson and, and you know, basically you know, told me better do it or else. And Ben Johnson called back Peter Bogdanovich and said, you put the old man on me. <laughs> so that was a great John Ford story there. How did they pay tribute to Robert Osborne? Well, there was a Remembering Robert event uh, on the first day of the festival. And that was very poignant. Diane Baker shared some, some lovely memories about him. There was a lot of mentions of him. For, for me, the most poignant was when um, Martin Scorsese was introducing the first nitrate screening of the festival, which was The Man Who Knew Too Much, and talking about how that's a really great way to honor Robert and honor his love of movies. I definitely felt like the nitrate screenings were, were very, had that, that feel of people were gathering for something very magical and unique. It was almost like a vigil in Club TCM on the walls, all of the pictures, they always every year have very beautiful stills from an assortment of movies. This year, all the films they chose were particular favorites of Robert Osborne's. And that's a really varied lot. That's part of what was joyful about it. There were all-timers like Sunset Boulevard. There were there was Gene Tierney and Leave It to Heaven. Gene Tierney was his favorite actress. But also there was this is Spinal Tap. Yes, I saw a picture of that, and I thought that was great. He loved that. I, when I was when I went to my first TCM Film Festival, there was the press day, and I got to go to that, and that's the only time I've ever um, heard Robert Osborne interviewed live. Um, you know, when I was actually there, and he he was talking about how much he loved this is Spinal Tap, and it was adorable. He he said, you know, my favorite films include Sunset Boulevard, A Place in the Sun, and I also love Spinal Tap, and it was just adorable because you don't think of Robert Osborne liking goofy movies you, like that, but even he did. Existing in the same universe as that, exactly. But he really had a, a marvelous sense of humor. And on Twitter, I, I was having a conversation with Molly Haskell because Twitter is a magical place, and she said something about how his gift was that he could always bring something dishy to the table. He always had good, juicy stories, but he was never mean. He was never talking down to anybody. And I feel like that spirit really carries on in the festival where it's all about people who want the backstory, who want the history, but it's a really just a very accepting open place to be where everybody is drawn together by love and nobody is like sneering at these movies. You know, sometimes when you go to a screening of an old film in you know, just some rep house, there might be people giggling or snickering at it or, or you know, wanting to feel superior to it. But you really don't get that at TCM Film Festival, which is part of the reason why I think people flock to it, because you are sharing something special 
with people who love it just as much as you do. Check out Nora Fiore's blog at nitratediva.wordpress.com. She has a full post about Angela Allen and Beat the Devil that's well worth reading. And follow her on Twitter. She's at Nitrate Diva. I'll have all those links in the show post at nitrateville.com. You can tell I'm a marketing genius, because I start a classic movie podcast and two of the first three episodes are about movies from the 1910s, and we're not even talking Griffith or Chaplin here. Well, I promise someday we'll get to movies and stars that people have actually heard of. But the 1910s are a fascinating era, because they're before the rules were set in stone before the industry consolidated in the 1920s, and certainly before the production code restricted subject matter in the 1930s. You could do things in the 1910s that you couldn't do later on, like be a woman director. There were a number of women directors in the 1910s, more than in any decade, arguably, to this day. And the most famous and celebrated one was Lois Weber. Milestone Films is releasing two of her films, both from 1916. A naturalistic social drama called Shoes, restored by iFilm Institute in the Netherlands, and The Dumb Girl of Portici, dumb in this case, of course, meaning mute, starring the legendary ballerina Anna Pavlova in her only film, and also, honestly, probably the only true epic ever directed by a woman. It was restored by the Library of Congress. They're playing archival showings around the country right now, and will be out on video this fall. Dennis Doros and his wife and partner Amy Heller run Milestone, and I spoke with him, starting with the question, so who was Lois Weber? She was born in 1879 in what is now Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was Allegheny City at that time, uh, to immigrant family. Uh, they were in upholsteries and fabrics and in carpet cleaning, so they were pretty lower middle class at best. And at the same time, she grew up fairly religious and was a active singer in the choir. She loved singing and started uh, becoming a professional pianist and singer on stage in vaudeville. Um, she had a piano mishap where some keys didn't work in 1903 or so. So she stopped playing the piano and went into acting where the next year she met Philip Smalley. Um, Philip Smalley had been a um, minor actor. His cl best claim to fame was uh, working with Minnie Madden Fisk uh, on Broadway a couple times, and he was traveling around in Turing. And so they got married in 1904. And then um, by 1907, she had retired, um, Lois, and went into working with Alice Key Blachet in New Jersey, writing... Uh, Phonoplays, actually talking pictures and singing in them. Um, 
and quickly, of course, with Alice Guy Blachet's blessing, she went into starting to uh, scriptwrite and direct. And very soon after, Philip Smalley, seeing a good thing and missing his wife, joined her and started directing and writing and uh, producing the films with her. Um, it was in 1912 when she started working for um, Rex Pictures that she really started acting, starring, and directing with Philip Smalley on a number of short films, a large number of short films. And in shortly thereafter, she joined Universal and started making feature films in 1914. I don't know if she was the first woman director um, to create a feature film. I've never bothered to try to prove any first because I know I'll always be wrong. But she certainly was one of the earliest and very quickly one of the highest paid directors in all of Hollywood. I know what was Rex Pictures because I don't really know them. I haven't seen a Rex picture in a while. Rex Pictures was started by uh, Edwin Porter, who was Edwin S. Porter, who was Edison's photographer. Uh, by 1912, I believe it was one of the affiliated companies that became Universal. And it was a company that made uh, many, many short films, not the most advanced, not the most um, adventurous filmmaking around at that time, but it did give um, Phillips and Lois a really good, sturdy platform, not only um, in directing, writing, and starring, but uh, Rex believed in artisanal filmmaking, where they also cut, where they helped in writing into titles. Um, later on, Lois would take a camera to do still. She would be in the lab cutting and tinting. Um, she learned everything to make motion pictures and really started with Rex in 1912. These early films are directed with her husband, uh, at least according to the titles. What do we know about their working relationship? Anything? Yes. Um, Richard Kozowski did an audio-taped interview with Lois in 19... with Mary MacDonald, um, the actress in Shoes in 1972. I'm sorry, Mary McLaren. I'm sorry, her original name was McDonald. And she said that it was a very close partnership, that they were on set together, they did everything together, they were very closely working together. Um, Universal did not portray it as such. In their scripts that were being written in the final scripts, it was always produced and directed by Lois Weber. Um, Phillips wasn't mentioned. So I think by 1914, a lot of the work had been going towards Lois. Um, but at least in 1912 and 1913, they were very closely together, working uh, on everything together. Was there a commercial advantage in portraying it as, as a woman-directed film at that point, do you think? I think there really was, and one of the reasons why so many women directors were um, working in the early uh, teens by then, the cinema had been growing popular, but it was still considered by upper-class society in the newspapers as lower-class fair and dangerous to um, attend, that women were going to be harassed and placed in dangerous situations. So I think, really, my feeling was so many women directors were put there as directors to show, give legitimacy to the film world, to show that it was socially acceptable and um, refined the same way that uh, famous plays and famous actors were being brought in at the same time by famous Lasky. And she definitely 
made films that had some social outlook to them that you know addressed issues of concern to women or society generally um let's talk about that a little bit with her early work in particular well she was always interested in religious themes uh as i said she was singing in the church when she was young and by when she was out of work in new york for a while she had been um working to convert people on the street and singing on the streets uh for religious purposes um so she was always interested in religion and social justice um much like Jacob Rees' uh, social reform in the late uh, 1890s and early part of the century. It was really as much conviction as much as Universal found them profitable. Uh, they did, I mean, one thing I should note that these women were brought in for respectability, but they were making money for Universal. Uh, Lois Weber was one of the highest grossing directors around and the highest paid. So she was allowed and much to Carl Lemley's credit in Universal, to stretch the borders of what was considered um, acceptable topics in cinema, abortion, um, divorce, things that no other director was willing to tackle and was being attacked by society as a whole. Uh, Lois Weber was able to direct themes on this nature and Universal backed her. Well, yes, yeah, since you brought up uh, the subject of abortion, which is never controversial to talk about uh, early in a podcast. Um, yeah, her film, Where Are My Children, which is, uh, what, 1915, 1916? Yes. Um, it's interesting to me. I mean, we we have a particular divide on abortion at this point, and I don't think the film easily fits into either side of that. Well, she was showing the the facts involved. She was showing what it, much like Shoes, much like um, her other social reform films, she was presenting the problems and not suggesting any answers, uh, much like some of the great other directors in history have done. This was a time during Margaret Sanger, during women's rights, before the vote. I mean, this is interesting to note because in 1915, of course, she couldn't vote. She couldn't run for office. Um, but she was one of the most influential women in America, just by the nature of her films. So she was tackling many different subjects that were in the news that were controversial. Um, and of course, the abortion issue also um, was brought in uh, as a social issue uh, about the lower class and sometimes misused for eugenics. So she was one of the first to talk about it on film. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the two films that you've brought back and you're distributing right now. Shoes, which is, what, 1913? 1916. 1916, I'm sorry. And then uh, The Dumb Girl of Portici, also 1916. Yes. So, God, I'm looking at her IMDb list, and there's like 15, 18, <laughs> I don't know, some crazy number of films from that year. Uh, uh, and not not that many of them are shorts either, so... It was something like 10 features and nine short films, and she starred in many of these as well as directed and um, edited these films and writ and scripted. So she was a very busy woman in 1915, 1916. Uh, the Dumb Girl of Portici was first, and it was started in June 1915. My theory was that Universal desperately needed to match Paramount 
uh, Cecil B. DeMille famous Lasky, who had brought in Geraldine Farrar that year to great acclaim and success. So they needed somebody to match that publicity and to match that notoriety. And the most, really the most famous woman on stage of that time was the ballerina Anna Pavlova. And unlike Mary Pickford or Charlie Chaplin, who earned their worldwide fame by appearing in films and the films being distributed around the world, Anna Pavlova had to do it one stage at a time, almost daily, sometimes twice daily, in almost every major city in the United States, Latin America, South America, Europe, Asia, Australia. She traveled around the world and really was the greatest dancer of her era and one of the most popular performers of her era. And so to for Universal to sign Pavlova to a um, contract when nobody else um, could be, was able to was a major coup for Universal. And really it was Pav- Pavlova who chose the dumb girl of Portici. She had been appearing in the opera slash ballet um, touring with the Boston Opera Company that year. And so it was a natural fit for them to do it. The cast of dancers in the film were her company. It was a major production. They said it cost $250,000, which would have been by far the most costly uh, film of its day. To compare it, shoes cost less than $20,000. So a $250,000 investment probably somewhat inflated, was still a major event. And if you consider it was the most expensive feature of the year, it was the um, huge cast, huge sets, uh, major length film. It was really a Hollywood epic and perhaps the only epic film ever directed by a woman before or since, I have to say. Well, yeah, that that came up on Facebook before I knew that you were uh, distributing this. You asked people if they could name an epic directed by a woman, and there really isn't one. You could maybe make a case for something like Zero Dark Thirty, but I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's yeah. it's kind of unique. And Zero Dark Thirty, I think, cost thirty million dollars, and an average Hollywood. Major film cost 150 to 250 million dollars. So yeah, it's very. I would love to find more films directed by uh, women that were epics, and I'm hoping there will be. But right now, it looks like this was the only one. Well, it's interesting too, in that I mean, a lot of what's really strong about her films is a fairly intimate focus. I think particularly of a later film, The Blot which is basically about a housewife you know who's struggling with not very much money and you know pretty pretty intimate in the detail of what that's like of of her sort of everyday existence so here she's directing on a big canvas what's that like it's very different it's quite interesting because shoes was only filmed a few months later and shoes is extremely understated is only 52 minutes maybe have been 60 minutes in 1916 and very small film. The dumb girl reported she has been accused of operatic style and overacting, but really Lois and Philip Smalley was going for a much bigger fare, was going for much broader acting, inventing their own style of acting, in fact, to match Pavlova's um, greatness. 
And so the dumb girl of Portuguese, unlike anything else uh, Lois Weber has ever done. And really, where the other films are known for their feminist um, social reform, the dumb girl of Portici, just by its very existence, is a great statement of Lois Weber's talents and ability to create a big film. The other thing that's not really recognized is her technical brilliance. Um, the camera work, the editing in the dumb girl of Portici and shoes is as advanced as anybody else's at that time, including D.W. Griffith. Uh, there are remarkable scenes in Dumb Girl of Portici with traveling shots uh, that edit into other shots. Just brilliant bravura filmmaking. Let's talk about uh, Anna Pavlova, who you know, today is probably best remembered as a dessert, but uh, one of those one of those stage people of the time who got a uh, a famous uh, foodstuff named after them. Um, but yeah, talk more about her. Anna Pavlova was born in 1881, just two years after Lois Weber, and at the age of eight had seen um, a ballet for the first time in her hometown of St. Petersburg, and desperately wanted to be a ballerina. Um, unfortunately, at that time, the Imperial School in St. Petersburg, you had to be 10. And so she had to wait two years of desperate um, desire. She was born poor. Her mother was a laundress. Her father unknown, most likely a Jewish soldier uh, in Russia. And she was very slight, very small, and not considered promising when she started uh, attending the ballet school at the age of 10. But soon she quickly rose to be a prima ballerina by the time she was, I think, 22. And by 1905, when she was 24, she was traveling. She started her traveling around the world um, that never stopped until she died in 1931. She was most known for a small, a very small little one-act um, performance that Michelle Fokin did for her for a benefit in 1905 called The Dying Swan. It was taken from a Camille Saint-Saëns piece and it became an instant sensation. Um, it has, it's still being performed today and to everybody who had saw, seen it, not ever closely, um, there's never been anyone close in comparison to her. She was a brilliant dancer, not technically, but brilliant in her own way and probably the most magnetic um, dancer on earth. Everybody who has ever seen her said that they have never seen anything like her. Um, just took the stage and just grabbed the audience and they never forgot her. Now one other person who's supposed to be in the cast, I have to ask this just because of who it is. Is Boris Karloff in this movie or not? Uh, I've looked at all the frames. I have not seen them, but there are a large crowd scenes and I can't promise you either way. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I figured the answer had yes. to be. <laughs> um, now, with somebody, it's sort of one of those those things where any woman director is immediately tagged as a feminist director. Um, what do you think? Is there something different about films being directed by Lois Weber that if you know some reasonably sensitive male director uh, <laughs> had done them, it's still different. Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I can say that with Dumb Girl of Portici, 
as perhaps the only epic ever directed by a woman, there is definitely a female point of view. Um, there is some brilliant scenes with Pavlova and with the daughter of the Duke, uh, played by Betty Shod and uh, and a Mason as uh, the princess. They are not the villains, the wealthy women. They are seen in a sympathetic light, as is, of course, Fenella, the poor dumb girl of Portici. And there is a focus on Fenella um, Pavlova as that I don't see equaled in epic films directed by men. Um, but it's only one film, so it's unfair to say that. Lois did focus on things that very few people else focused on. Um, I'd say Marshall Nealon was the other one who could uh, have a close-up of an uh, actor from behind, uh, focusing on the back and a shrug of a shoulder um, to equal her ability to focus on things like shoes or purse or something to denote the ca character's position in life. But really... Um, let's say Von Stroheim's focus on shoes was nothing like Lois Weber's focus on shoes. It meant something totally different. And so maybe in the 1950s, 1960s, uh, Naruse, the great Japanese director, had this same feel for women's costumes for where that denoted a person's class, their um, you in life. But... I would say there was a difference between Lois Weber and uh, male directors. Yeah, I think uh, the blot, for one, makes a case for that. I mean, you can you can say it's sort of Stroheimian to compare it inevitably to a male director's film, um, but just the things that she's sort of focused on the pitiless realism of are such women's concerns that I feel like even a even a good director, you know, Frank Borzaghi or somebody wouldn't have handled it in quite a, quite the same way. It's, it just seems very immediate and real. I would have to agree. It's um, it's difficult to judge eras and difficult to judge scripts, um, the choice of scripts, things like that. But I do appreciate that Lois never embarrassed the women um, performers, never put them in a place that... Well, I'll tell you, for example, in Shoes, we can go to that film, uh, shot just a few months later after Dumb Girl Portici, which is so in such a minor key, but so brilliant at the same time. There was many portrayals of shop girls in 1910 as being immoral, as uh, looking for luxuries and wanting the luxuries of their wealthier counterparts and willing to sleep with men to gain these small luxuries like watches, clothes, things like that. And in shoes, it's totally different. Um, this is a poor shop girl who is desperately need and money just to survive and is forced into prostitution into, in fact, it's really more of a rape than um, pleasure. Definitely more like rape than pleasure, uh, just so she could survive. Um, it was never judgmental, um, never putting Mary McLaren as Ava Meyer, never putting poor little Ava as anything but moral, and that the choices she had to make were immoral, 
um, because of what her circumstances were. Now, I think the last film of hers that I've seen is The Blot, which is 1921. How did her career go after that point? Well, it's an interesting thing. The What I feel is by 1920, when she left Universal, and so did most of the women directing at Universal um, and at May Park and the others, um, the age of respectability was attained um, by Hollywood, that they were major business now, and with the major money involved, the men stepped in. And that was one thing. I also think that... Um, like D.W. Griffith, whose Edwardian, Victorian um, scripts had lost favor with the Jazz Age. Um, Lois Weber, socialist, Jacob Rees-like uh, scripts lost favor with the Jazz Age, too. They were not willing to look at the impoverished anymore. The stories had changed. Um, at the same time, um, she had the divorce from Philip Smalley, which was heartbreaking. She had another marriage that had ended in divorce and financial ruin. He took all her money. And she was starting to have gastric ulcers, which um, also created problems for her directing. But probably more so that with the loss of Universal and Carl Emley's support, she was not given the ability to create the films that she wanted to make. And the and Paramount and the other studios were not willing to uh, protect her legally from the criticisms of the subject matter she was portraying. So it became tougher and tougher to make films for her, but it was tougher for all the women directors by then. And probably just for a lot of teens directors in general as the industry consolidated. I would say so, yes. So I know that uh, the films will be playing in Chicago through the month of April. Uh, there's a, I think there's a five-film retrospective in Chicago that includes Shoes and Dumb Girl of Portici. Where else uh, are you going with these films in the next several months? Um, let me check that for you. Okay. It's on www.loisweber.net, and so I have to keep up. Coming up is, um, it's just playing this week at the Savoy Theater in Montpelier, Vermont. Um, they are playing in Chicago this April at the Gene Siskel. It's going to be the closing night uh, at the Cascadia International Women's Film Festival, April 23rd. And I can't announce it yet until tonight, but it's playing a major silent film festival in San Francisco in June. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Okay, well, that, that'll be old news by the time this goes uh, <laughs> on the internet. So, Good. Um, But it will be, they are playing around the world. They are playing in major cities and we will be releasing them of course and I know that's the next question on DVD and Blu-ray probably by September Thanks to my guests, Nora Fiore, a.k.a. Nitrate Diva, and Dennis Doros of Milestone Films. There will be links and video clips from some of these Lois Weber titles in the show post at nitrateville.com. And remember to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Music is by Kevin McLeod. 
In the next Nitrateville Radio, I'll talk to an old friend from my hometown and to one of the leading historians on Walt Disney. They're the same guy, J.B. Kaufman, author of the recent book Pinocchio, The Making of the Disney Epic, among many others on the Disney Studios output. <laughs>